Hey everyone, it's Johanna with Promo Kitchen, and we are doing a night series tonight. So cocktail in hand for me. I'm with Mark Graham from Common Skew, our Promo Kitchen chef. And tonight we're with Dr. Jonathan Cook. Jonathan Cook is a good friend of mine. I'm very honored to call him a friend. He grew up with my husband, and he is currently a doctor in Chicago in a hospital. He's a pulmonary critical care physician. And he's employed at the Northwestern Medicine Central DuPage and Del Nor Hospitals. And he's currently working full time around the clock, taking some time to talk with us tonight just about the current state and everything that's going on. So before we get started with any questions, we both want to say thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us tonight. Absolutely. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me as well. And thank you, John, for the great work you're doing. The world has really changed quickly over the last few weeks. Lately, it seems hourly. Walk us through what it's been like for you over the last month. The word I use is whirlwind, but I also think that's probably, you know, for people that aren't in medicine, probably a pretty similar word they'd use to describe how things have been for this month of March. What a wild month. Everyone's undergone a lot of emotions and changes in their lives and kind of some shock and discomfort with some of the news they've been hearing and some of the things they've been seeing. I think doctors have probably been a little bit ahead of the curve, just based on some of the information that we've been able to get from other physicians or ways of communicating with each other via message groups, et cetera, Facebook physician groups. So I would say probably, you know, at the very beginning of March, I was like most just hearing about this and hoping that it wouldn't hit us like we were hearing about in China. And then you started to hear about the experience in Italy, but also kind of still felt probably naively that, boy, it sounds bad in Italy, but that wouldn't really happen to us here. Around the second week of March or so, some physicians started speaking out, which certainly you didn't hear a lot of physicians speaking out in China, but physicians in Italy started speaking out and then some in Seattle as well. Seattle was probably the first US city that got hit hard by this, started speaking out a lot. And right around the second week of March, I remember specifically a night shift I was working. I had a little bit of time and I was on a Facebook physician group and reading some of the comments and went from hoping that we'd be okay to genuinely being incredibly concerned and I guess scared, not so much about my own health, but scared about what was coming and kind of a slap in the face realization that, oh my God, this is coming. It's happening. Over the next couple of weeks, you know, just a lot of concern about what might be happening and what might happen with our institutions and the sort of patients we'll be seeing. Will we be completely overwhelmed? Will we be beyond our means to take care of the number of patients that will be hitting us? But I'd say probably after the initial concern, there's been a lot of, I found comfort in the amount of planning and preparation that our hospitals have done to be prepared for this. And then it kind of just turned into just wait. Just wait for the reckoning to hit. And then the other funny thing that's evolved over the last week or so is all of a sudden, you know, we're being spoken about as physicians and nurses and et cetera, and intensive care are being spoken about as heroes, which is a very funny, you know, something that someone told me at the beginning of March to say there's no way that we'd be described as such, but it's been quite the month to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's been a, a real emotional ride, but you certainly as a segment are heroes. So thank you. I think Joe and I can certainly say that on behalf of the community we represent. Thank you. I appreciate that. John, 
Is there any segment of society not taking this seriously yet? I mean, outside of the Florida spring break crowd, anyone else that you see? I still think probably, I don't mean to generalize, you know, young people or berate young people or condescend towards quote unquote young people. But I would imagine that younger individuals still as a whole might not be as concerned about getting sick and being critically ill as the older segment of the population. I do think that's probably significantly improved over the last couple of weeks, but I still certainly would imagine, even I could say myself, I don't know. I know where my mind would be when I was in college, but it's hard for young people to take this sort of thing very seriously. So I still say young people, and then probably I don't want to overwhelmingly tip my politics or where I fall, but there's still a certain segment of politics that are trying to significantly minimize how significant and scary this coronavirus outbreak is. And that short of that, I would say most people are actually coming around and taking this pretty seriously. But those are the groups that I would say still I want to crack my head against the wall sometimes reading some things that are coming out of those groups. John, within medical circles, how is the economic impact of social distancing discussed? Or is it at all? And to give you some context behind why I ask this question is that Joe and I are representing a community of people in the promotional products industry that are not medical professionals. We're people in the advertising space, and many have either lost their jobs or most certainly will lose their jobs over the course of the next several weeks or several months. So the question I want to ask on behalf of business folks is, where does the economic consequences of some of these decisions factor in, or do they at all? Well, like most, I mean, I think doctors don't want to lose their money either. So I think it is something that bothers us. I'm an intensive care doctor. I don't have to worry about business right now. Your average hospital doctor doesn't have to worry about business right now, but a lot of doctors are being impacted too. My wife's a gastroenterologist, for example, and her workload is dramatically reduced. The organization with which she works is cutting salaries for some time. And a lot of physicians out there have to worry about their financial well-being and their jobs too. That said, I think it's relatively straightforward for right now. If you have people dying at a pace that our country, at least recently, has no familiarity with, your economy is not going to thrive. I'm no economic expert, but I think that's the reality. Think about what's happening in New York right now. Think about if Wall Street was operating at full scale. Think about how that would look and think about what sort of confidence there would be in the markets with the you know, amount of people that are dying in New York. And you know, it's not the right decision to let people do what they normally do when so many people are at risk of dying. There's no nicer way to say it. Well, and I think if you listen to economists, despite how challenging this is, I think the universal approach amongst the business and economics world is target the virus, put everything you have into finding a vaccine or a cure to flatten the curve so that business can go back to normal. Because if you can't restore consumer confidence because of this unknown, then you'll have a much, much bigger problem on a longer term basis, despite how extremely frustrating and scary it is in the short midterm. That's right. So I appreciate that answer. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
and I think folks are listening to this, I think it will give them a sense of comfort as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think Easter seemed pretty soon and worrisome. And now we're talking about possibly April 30th. I'd be surprised if that date sticks, but at least around that window into May, you'd like things to be able to loosen up a little bit, but it all depends on what we're seeing with our patients. If people are still getting sick and dying at the rates that we're seeing so far, then it just doesn't make sense to open things up. John, let's shift gears for a second and talk about children. How are you talking to your kids about the coronavirus? I know you have one adorable toddler and a baby. Is your toddler confused about why people are home or maybe not as home as much? What have you told her? How are you talking to her? First of all, my kids are the best right now. They're like the perfect cure for all the anxiety and stress, even though typically they're the large source of my anxiety and stress. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, That's a good way the, of putting it. <laughs> it, it. Yeah, right. You know, being able to come home and my oldest is still under three years old. So I have two very young kids. And the ignorance, the blissful ignorance and sweetness they still have is, it's very comforting. Our oldest, we've told that just a lot of people are sick and we can't go out and we can't go to school and we can't go out to dinner because a lot of people are sick. And she's actually taken that pretty well. The other day when I was at work and I was FaceTiming with her, she was actually asking me if she could see the sick people, which was kind of funny. Mm. (laughs) I said, no, honey, you can't do that. But Otherwise, she's taking it pretty well, and it's been you know, one of the few silver linings. Them seeing my wife home a little bit more and being able to spend a little bit more time with them than usual has been nice. Good to have a silver lining there. Yeah. I want to see your wife more, too, <laughs> selfishly. Yeah. yeah. No, not, not quite yet. Not Soon quite. enough, I hope. Soon. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking over dinner with our kids. We've got three kids, 10. 13 and 15. Yeah. And certainly there's a lot of negative things about what's happening right now, but there are some silver linings and we've talked about it, right? This idea of no school, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit, you know, the kind of thing that you'd expect maybe a teenager to say. Right. I was reflecting on it with my wife, Catherine, my wife and I, we run our business together. And well, on one hand, there is certainly more stress because you've got this existential crisis that's facing us, but then there's yep. Think about not having to drive around to all the sports activities that our kids are involved in and fighting traffic and getting home from work and getting dinner on the table. And now we're at home and it's surprisingly raised a fair amount of stress. And I think our kids are seeing that, right? On one hand, they see the uncertainty their parents are facing. But on the other hand, they're like, hey, our parents are around and this is cool. We can, (laughs) you know, see them. So so there are some silver linings for sure. There are some silver linings, yep. You got to take them where you can find them right now. Yeah, exactly. John, how is the coronavirus different from past viruses like SARS, MERS, H1N1, as it pertains to your role as a medical professional? Well, that one's a little bit difficult for me to answer with specifics to my role for all of those outbreaks. The reason why being, I was quite young, at least professionally, when SARS hit, and I never took care of SARS patients. I wasn't even in medical school yet, actually, when SARS really made its outbreak. And it also happens to be gone. It might come back, but it's gone. Yeah. The specific strain of coronavirus that caused SARS is gone. MERS sounds like an awful, awful disease. The death rate in MERS 
time is actually significantly higher than what we see in COVID. But it's not something that we see in the United States. I don't believe there's MERS in Canada either. I could be wrong about that. But it's something, at least in North America, I don't believe we're seeing. So nothing I specifically have had to take care of, thankfully. H1N1, I do remember when it hit hard, we still see some H1N1. And those patients can be sick. But when it really hit hard, I think was around, ooh, I was a third year resident. So it was probably you know around 2010, 2011 or so. The number of patients was significantly less that were getting very sick. So for example, during H1N1, there was a lot of news. There was a lot of stories about very sick people. But there wasn't a situation where you had you know patients in hallways, you had ORs and hospitals being shut down to fill different areas of the hospitals with patients. You didn't have ventilator shortages. You didn't hear all this talk about PPE or you know protective personal equipment. And H1N1, I think the really scary thing was just that there was a lot of reports of young, previously healthy people getting really sick from H1N1. And the other really scary group that was getting sick was pregnant women. Yeah which we're not hearing much about, at least the pregnant women part, we're not hearing much about in COVID. Yeah. But we could expand about this more later. But the previous thought process that young people weren't being affected with COVID, I don't think stands as much as it did, let's say, three weeks ago or so when we were hearing that. Yeah. And I know that of the three, the H1N1 was the most recent. Right. I certainly remember it in Toronto, certainly being big news and people being concerned. But so interesting about it is that it just never tipped. It never exploded on an exponential level like coronavirus did like just a few weeks ago. Right. And this is a very silly comparison or parallel, but it's almost like it feels like H1N1 back at the time was kind of what coronavirus was in Wuhan for us in North America. Yeah. We knew about it. We were concerned about it, but it felt like it was not really a huge, huge threat in that it would just go away. And then all of a sudden it was on our shores. So right. I think that that's from my perspective, just as a regular civilian, not as a medical professional, that that's been my take in terms of like this exponential increase out of nowhere. Right. And one of the advantages with flu, at least, is that it's a little bit more predictable and how it might come and go. There is Tamiflu, which at least has been shown in severe illness to probably help patients. And then once it goes away, People have time to create a vaccine to try and prevent, you know, as many yeah. severe cases from H1N1 for the next flu season. Right now, we're working on things, but right now we don't have that for this COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah. John, I'm in Chicago. Mark's in Toronto. You're in the Chicago area as well. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about being in a large hospital in a large city. How do you prepare for a pandemic? Can you prepare? What's it like for you guys on the back end? And how are you talking to staff who may have concerns, questions? I'm sure they have their own families and their own worries. How do you talk to staff and how do you prepare? Yeah, well, fortunately, I'm in a hospital that's done a very nice job of preparing, which makes me feel better, really, about absolutely everything. I suppose, you know, maybe in some hospitals like New York, no matter how well you've prepared, you're still going to get overwhelmed. But it feels good, at least, to be in a place that's done a very good job of preparation. So, number one, you got to believe. The threat. I think that's the first stage. If there's a certain degree of hubris where you think it's not going to hit you or you'll be able to respond immediately when it hits you, you're not going to be prepared enough. If you believe the threat, then there is a wonderful opportunity to massively prepare for this sort of thing. And that's what's happened within the hospital system I work with. You have to start very big 
and essentially plan for the worst. And planning for the worst involves working to have as many materials as is possible. Right now, we don't have PPE concerns in our hospitals, for example, in the system I work in. There has to be a commitment to surge planning and staffing. So you have to start going beyond the typical staffing that you're used to having in intensive care units, ERs, just the regular old medical floors. In our hospital, we've done a fair amount of simulations for patients that come in with COVID and need to be put on ventilators. How the process works where we do that in COVID compared to your average patient that might need to put on a ventilator. Same thing goes, uh, God forbid, if a patient like this heart stop and we have to do things like CPR, we've done simulations for that, which in these sorts of patients, we have to think about it a little bit differently because of the infectious considerations, building protocols. And then in our hospitals, they've gone ahead and they've massively expanded the number of negative pressure rooms, which I'm sure some people have yeah. heard about in the news, but those are essentially rooms that can kind of suck all of the potentially viral particles out of the room so that it won't spread outside of the rooms. And in our hospitals, they've built probably 30 more negative pressure rooms than we previously had. I may actually be underestimating the number, but they keep building more and more to try and keep us safe. And even when you do all that, like I said, it still might not be enough, but at least you can try to prepare for the worst. And if it's worse than you thought it might be, I'm not really sure what else you can do, but it requires a ton of planning and a ton of preparation, like I said, taking it very seriously. Do you feel like this is preparing you for something down the line? I mean, I'm not predicting anything will happen, but do you? Yeah. Feel, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. That's good. 100%. I mean, we'll see. I don't know. We have all these negative pressure rooms. So let's say this COVID thing finally goes away in, I don't know, six weeks. Not goes away, but doesn't become the same threat that it is now. Are we going to start taking down all these negative pressure rooms or the ability to keep these rooms negative pressure? I don't know. But there's a lot of experience and learning, and there's so much that goes into this preparation that I think intuitively, if something very serious were to happen again in the relatively near future, I think you'd be far more prepared to take care of it. Yeah. And so the nerd in me is super curious. I have a hidden nerd in me. Is there a population on robotics? It's not that hidden, Joe. Yeah, it's not that hidden. Yeah, it's not hidden. (laughs) I'm cool, guys. I'm cool. Is (laughs) is the simulation that you're doing on robotics? No. We do have dummies. There are more advanced dummies for some sorts of simulations, but that's not necessary for what we're doing. Got it. So there's a dummy that you could put a breathing tube in, for example. But beyond that, no, no robotics for these. And Mark, I know for us as well, I mean, obviously neither one of us is physicians, but I know looking at how Axis is covering things and our industry as a whole, PPAI, ASI, looking at leaders in the situation, I'm taking notes on how things are being approached and how things are being handled and yep. certainly learning on, you know, being prepared for disaster. There's a lot of different ways people are doing it right. Yep. Again, find your silver linings, you know, where you can. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, Joe, we've seen in our industry how many of us have been able to adapt fairly easily to working remote, right? It became an order that we had to disperse in our respective companies. And, you know, I think last time I spoke to you, it sounds like things are going relatively well at Axis. I know our team at CommonSkew is scattered all around North America and doing relatively well. Beyond that, I think it's important that companies in our space think beyond that in terms of disaster preparedness, in terms of you know how safe their customer data is and how 
sound their financials are, all that kind of stuff, I think is really, really important. And it's been a bit of a wake-up call, I think, to a lot of us. Sure. Mm -hmm. Switching gears here, John, what's the most alarming thing you've witnessed since the coronavirus arrived in North America? So I don't want to scare the crowd listening, (laughs) but I have to say it's been very bothersome to see the fact that young people are getting very sick with this. Because when you heard about it in Italy, at least, you were hearing a lot of older patients that were getting sick and young people are protected, but they might serve as reservoirs for the virus. So young people need to be careful too. There's not quite what we're seeing in the state. That doesn't mean that your average patient is a young patient, but uh, I could say in our hospitals, and I know experiences uh, at other hospitals in the US, a lot of young patients are getting pretty sick. That was one of the scariest things when I was first reading about some of the experiences people were having in New York and Seattle is reading about, you know, someone was mentioning a 32-year-old nurse that was on a ventilator with low blood pressure. And I literally went from just being curious to, you know, my heart started pounding mm. and it was saying, well, what the hell? That's not what's supposed to be happening here. We're not supposed to have young healthcare workers getting this sick, but it's been happening. We've relatively well publicized at Mount Sinai, a 40-something-year-old nurse died after he got sick, and it's scary. It's scary that nobody really seems to be immune to getting very sick from this. Now, that said, of course, your average patient's going to be older, but we are seeing young people as well, too. Yeah, that was a question that I had in terms of the actual risk groups. And is that even a fair question to ask now in terms of whether you can define a particular risk group at this point, or is it open season? Well, I think it's open season. I could tell you a little bit about my experience in that something that we've seen as a common thread is obesity. Mm. So a lot of our patients that are sick happen to be pretty significantly overweight. Right. And I don't know if that hadn't been previously well described in Italy because they don't have as many significantly overweight people in Italy. I don't know. That might be a very simple way of looking at it. I'm not sure. Obviously, there's a greater percentage of obese patients in the US than there is in Europe. But I've been surprised to see the number of relatively young patients and a common thread seems to be obesity. Poorly controlled diabetes seems to be, again, poorly controlled diabetes seems to be something that's been a risk factor that we've noted in patients where we otherwise have thought, you know, why, why is this the patient that got pretty sick? And then everything else that we've been hearing about in the news, just older age, heart issues, lung issues, those patients tend to be at higher risk as well. Immune systems that aren't fully competent, patients on chemotherapy, patients that are on steroids, for example, of course, those patients are at risk. Right. So it sounds like our experience in North America is different than it is in Italy in the respect that Italy seemed to be more focused on the older demographic, whereas in the US, and we could lump Canada into this as well, seems to be a little bit all over the map. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I need to be a little bit careful because what I'm speaking about is largely anecdotal. Yeah. But if I had to guess, I would think that once larger data comes out, that we're going to see that it's a younger population here than they probably saw in Italy. I don't really know enough about exactly what they're seeing in Spain and France and the UK, which are obviously being hit hard, Europe in general. But I think we'll see that there's probably younger patients in North America. Hmm. Not reassuring. Yeah. 
But to reiterate, and I want to send this message across, a person who is reasonably young, who doesn't have other medical issues, who gets sick, is still overwhelmingly likely to not get critically ill. It's still overwhelmingly likely that one won't. But to say that a young person who has some other risk factors won't wind up in the intensive care unit would be wrong. Right. And then, of course, you've got scenarios like Tom Hanks and his wife that I think recently came out and from what I understand, emerged relatively unscathed. The experience was mildly uncomfortable, but nothing serious. And Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting they represent the majority, but I suppose I look at scenarios like that and see a small shining light of positivity. (laughs) I think most of the publicized COVID-19 cases have done okay. I mean, all the NBA players, yeah, a lot of athletes, a lot of people, a lot of the TV people, movie people have been okay so far, which is good. I mean, I think it's good for our country to see that. Yep. How is China able to get this under control so quickly? I have a little bit of skepticism, but what I would say is that I should stay as a preface. I'm certainly no expert in how the Chinese government and people function, but they are a communist government. And I think a very simple thing to say, and I apologize if I'm off base on this, but a very simple thing to say is people probably tend to listen a little bit better when the government says stay home than people do here. Now, beyond that, it's not just that. If indeed they did get numbers under control that quickly, and to some degree they must have, we don't know all the facts, but they obviously had an incredibly aggressive response to try and prevent the virus from spreading. Are we seeing that same thing in the States? I don't know. You know, I think in Illinois, we have a governor who's come out and sounded pretty aggressive and has kind of said all the right things. It's made me feel good when he comes on and talks and says, you know, kind of um, waxes about how concerned he is and how he's listening to healthcare workers and he wants to do everything he can to help us. But is every state doing that? Is our federal government doing that? I, I don't know. I would think probably not to the same degree China did. Sure. So do you think we should believe the numbers in China? I don't know. It seems pretty hard to accomplish such amazing results so quickly with a virus like this that just sticks around and easily infects people and stays dormant for days at a time while it keeps infecting people. It seems hard, but I guess I'm not one to say yes or no on that. I'd say I have some cynicism over it, but I'm not sure. Okay, we can leave it at that. Yep. Yeah. Tough question, but we appreciate your honesty on that. Switching gears to New Orleans and Mardi Gras, we saw that New Orleans exploded with cases about three weeks after Mardi Gras. And I think Mardi Gras is at the end of February, if my memory serves me correct. It's now one week post spring break in Florida. Do you anticipate that we're going to see a similar explosion in Florida? I think it's likely we'll see a significant increased number of reported cases in Florida soon, but I don't know that those are will be all attributable to this spring break issue that I know media was kind of big and covering. Right. I mean, Mardi Gras is like, I went to Mardi Gras three years in a row in college, and I'm sure many people have you know, as well, and maybe some of the listeners can relate, but it is literally masses and masses of people packed into the tightest places possible. Yeah. You have people making out for beads. You have, you know, I mean, it's literally if, if a virus was going to explode in a setting, I'm not sure that Mardi Gras is rivaled by any other gathering in the world. So I think Mardi Gras is like made for breeding 
and worsening, you know, virus like this COVID-19. Yeah. I'm sure it didn't help the spring break issue in Florida, but I tend to think it's probably a little bit overblown. Yeah. We hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're yeah. right too. Yeah. I guess we'll see. But a lot of these people weren't all from Florida, right? I guess I could be wrong, but I think a fair amount of people that were on the beaches in Florida weren't staying in Florida. They were scattering and I'm sure you're going to see that there will be more reported cases in that area, but I, I'm not sure that they'll all be attributable to everybody gathering on beaches in Florida as opposed to packing Bourbon Street. Yeah. yeah. Joe, were you supposed to be in Florida over spring break? Was your trip canceled or am I remembering that incorrectly? It might have been someone else. My father is in Florida and he's slated to come here end of this month, but I think we're going to postpone that trip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably a good idea. Probably not happening. Yeah. Probably going to yeah. push that back. So, yeah. John, you know, I'm imagining every day as a physician is pretty stressful, as you mentioned, but right now, stress levels must be super high. What are you doing to keep yourself mentally okay? I know you love running. Do you try to run more? How are you clearing your head? And another question I think is coming up a lot is outdoor running. Is that safe? Is there anything we should be taking into account when we're outdoor running? So yes, I'm definitely still running on my days off. The days I usually work are 12 hour work days and out of the house before seven, home around eight-ish or 8.30ish or so. So it's hard to get that in on those days. But any day off, yes, I, I need to run. It is truly the best place to clear my head and feel good and at least feel like I'm doing something good for myself. So I love it. I think running outdoors is very safe. Obviously, in big metropolitan areas where people are running a little bit closer to each other, maybe a little bit less safe. But generally speaking, you're running right by people. If somebody runs by you and coughs you know, on your shoulder, that's not great. But short of that, I think as long as you're keeping your distance a little bit, I think running outside is a good thing mentally and also is pretty safe. So I would still advocate doing such. And I think that's largely the message that's being communicated by governors. I know our governor you know, said, go right ahead and go running, go hiking, go walking. I would imagine that's probably being communicated similarly across the country or across North America. Short of running, I find myself drinking more. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are doing that during the quarantine. When it's at night and I'm just kind of reading, um, checking on what's happening at the hospitals, I'm reading emails, reading at what some other people are experiencing in some other centers across the country. It can be anxiety provoking and it makes you feel a little bit unnerved. So bourbon has treated me well, relatively well. And otherwise, like I mentioned, just spending time with my family. I have a dog that I love hanging out with and she's happy as can be. Doesn't know anything that's going on. It's kind of nice to see being unaffected as a dog can be right now. Life's still good for them. So those are the things that I do. I miss sports, but that's not really happening these days either. So yeah, do the best I can with what's out there. You know, mentioning New York, and I'm sure you're following some of these feeds in the groups you mentioned, I can't help but imagine your mind goes to the fact that you could very well be in New York. A while back, you were going to do a residency there, right? Yeah, I, I interviewed at one of the New York hospitals for my fellowship. So that thought crossing your mind, like, wow, what if I ended up there? Yeah, I mean, I truly feel so awful about what's happened in New York. I don't mean to minimize absolutely Northern Italy experience similar. I think very similar. I don't know exactly what's happening in Spain and the UK. I think probably, you know, to some degree, there are more populated areas might be experiencing some. But we do know what's happening in New York. My heart goes out to them. 
it sounds just so rough. Every day just sounds like such a grind and really overwhelming and scary. People that want to call us heroes right now, that's great. I appreciate it. That's very nice. But I think truly right now, the way things are, I think the real heroes are people like the ones working, you know, 12 hour shifts and taking care of nonstop COVID patients, you know, in some places without the best supplies to protect themselves like people are doing in New York. And again, that's not to minimize some other very bad situations that people might be experiencing in other spots of our country or the world. But we know what's happened in New York. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as someone that has a lot of family in New York, the anxiety has been super rough lately. I can totally imagine. Absolutely. John, I have a question about your perception as to what industries like the promotional products industry are doing to help in this time of crisis. So I'll give you the example. Mm-hmm. A number of factories that we work with have moved their production lines to producing gowns, face masks, and so on and so forth in the PPE department. And a number of people in the promotional products industry have shifted either selling or donating these products to medical professionals and hospitals. I know that you're not really in our industry at all, but when you hear that sort of thing, from your perspective, is that helping? Is it moving the needle? Or is it a bunch of non-medical people that are trying to help that probably aren't really helping at all? No, I, I think it is incredibly helpful. It feels good to hear about it. I do think it probably helps in a tangible way. I think people doing their part to try and help when they necessarily can't be on the front lines is incredibly helpful. It's inspiring. I don't mean to get super rah-rah about it, but I mean, I think it's a type of thing that makes you feel good about your country and you know makes you feel like people are stepping up where they can. I love it. I love it. I really do. I mean, the last week in this hospital, just about every shift I had, there was some local business that was donating lunch, cake, something. Yeah. to some of the units in the hospital where the workers are. It's, it's incredibly appreciated. It, it really is. Yeah. It's been so interesting. I mean, within the last, Joe, I don't know if you'd feel the same way, but it, I mean, if it would have been three weeks ago, I'm not even sure I knew what PPE was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And some of our trusted suppliers that we've worked with for years, when they were telling me that they were literally changing up their production line so they could produce face masks, I was like, yep. what? What are you talking about? That's the last thing I would ever imagine your company making because maybe they're a tote bag manufacturer or they make something else totally unrelated. But when you think about it, it's bolts of fabric and they've got hundreds of people that sew and can make custom patterns. So at the end of the day, it's not entirely surprising. And I just thought that was so amazing. And I think, A, it's benefiting the country. It's a way for people like us in the non-medical community to help out. And I also think up there in terms of importance, it's keeping people employed because these businesses are now deemed essential mm-hmm. and you've got hardworking American and Canadians that are able to maintain some semblance of employment during a time of great uncertainty. So I'm glad to hear that the efforts our industry is making aren't viewed as being superfluous. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I truly, truly love it. It makes me feel good. Cool. So the media doesn't turn off and Facebook Instagram, Twitter, everything is making us quote unquote coronavirus experts. Tell us what you want people to know that they may not know already. 
What's a misconception that they might have about this virus? It's funny because oftentimes I get very irritated when people are on their phone and looking up certain disease entities. I, I take care of patients that get very sick from infections, the medical term, which many recognize as sepsis, for example. And every month or so, I'll have some family member who looks up sepsis and starts showing me their phone or starts telling me you know, something they read on Google about sepsis. And it can drive me a little bit crazy. But I think because the information is coming so fast and our ways of getting information is very different right now in 2020. And because this is so new, social media and media itself have been helpful. I've appreciated the role that it's played in educating patients and their families on this COVID-19 crisis. So I think probably the biggest misconception is, and I hate to say it, but the biggest misconception is that young people are spared. Hmm. Which we talked about earlier, it's just not true. Again, it is very likely that a young person who gets sick is not going to wind up in the intensive care unit. Very likely. But one should not assume that they can't do very poorly if they get sick, if they're on the young side. You know, another thing I, I don't mean to come off as overly pessimistic or just keep delivering bad news, but I think something that people should know is it's just very tough for patients in the hospital. And I do think maybe in New York Times, I can't remember where I saw it. I do think this was, you know, a a nice piece was written about this, but families aren't allowed in the hospital right now Mm. for obvious reasons. It's a really tough time to be sick and in the hospital. It's very lonely for patients. And the ones that come in with just a little bit of shortness of breath and needing a little bit of oxygen and progress and get worse and wind up in our ICU and sometimes wind up in ventilators, it's a very lonely time for them. So I don't mean to come off as being super corny and, you know, telling people, hey, make sure you tell the people you love that you love them. But it's an important time to just be in contact with the people you care about. And if you have older parents, older grandparents that could be affected, it's a reasonable time to just talk about what their wishes are if they get very sick. And it doesn't have to be an overwhelmingly painful conversation. Just make sure that you understand what one's thoughts are about what constitutes a good quality of life, the type of hardships that they'd be willing to endure if they were to get sick. And I think these are healthy conversations that are very hard to have, but now is a really good time to have them. Absolutely. Great message. So John, as we finish this up, we always like to ask our guests, if there's anything you want to add, anything you want to tell us that we might not have covered or anything you want to add? You know, I think... It might be a little bit interesting to hear about what someone like myself or probably somebody even more so in the emergency room goes through on a daily basis when they work and then they have to get home. You know, they're concerned about bringing COVID home, you know, what one does about it. And it's pretty stressful because despite wearing PPE and despite doing what you can, you still feel like you're full of COVID at the end of the day. And then you got to go home to kids, you got to go home to your wife. My routine is constantly washing my hands at work all the time, obviously. My cell phone is in a plastic bag. When I go onto the units, I change into scrubs. When I get to work, I change out of those scrubs and then wear different clothes home. Try to shower at work if possible, get home and still immediately take my clothes off when I enter the door, throw them in the washing machine. My bag that I bring to work, my jacket that I wear to work stays in the garage. Sometimes, depending on my level of concern, I might take a second shower when I get home, you know, if my kids are around. 
and I don't know how helpful this is going to be or how much it matters, but I've moved out of our bedroom and I'm in a separate room now just to try and spare my wife in the event that I've been more exposed. And some in the industry have moved as far as they can away from their families. I don't know anybody who's done this, but some have moved to hotels. Some moved in with their parents to stay away from their kids. So it's a stressful time for those of us that are coming in contact with these patients frequently when you go home. I know this is not a shock. I have tears in my eyes. Yeah. I can't imagine that stress. I can't imagine. I can't imagine walking in my door and not being able to run to see the kids and having to take those precautions and doing all that laundry. (laughs) Yeah. No, I cannot. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. And my kids are usually in bed by the time I get home, fortunately. So I don't have to, I mean, it it stinks in one way, but also at least I don't have to deal with, you know, pushing my three-year-old away when she runs to me. So it's a stressful time. It is. That's the reality of it. It's a stressful time. Well, on behalf of everyone that's listening in the Promo Kitchen community, a big, big thanks for doing this. We super appreciate it. We hope better weeks are to come and that we know that you've learned so much from this and you're a better person for it and can't thank you enough for the commitment you've, you've made to medicine. So thank you. Thank you very much for all the nice things you guys have said. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.